It's an exciting day in the McFarling family. Got tons of uh, family in town this morning uh, that are here for my ordination service this evening. And I've got a lot of uh, questions about the ordination service. I'm aware they don't happen every week, and maybe you've never been to one before. Um, so to, uh, to whet your appetites a little bit, I'll go ahead and tell you, uh, not only is it a service of celebration, but it's also another worship service. So if you're able to make it tonight, we'll sing together. Uh, there'll be a guest preacher here. His name is David Henderson. He's one of the pastors uh, at First Pres Columbia, where I previously was. He was my previous boss. Um, you know, they, the Bible says iron sharpens iron. And for the last three years, it was primarily David uh, sharpening me. So I'm excited for y'all to get to hear from him uh, and to get to meet him. And I know he's really excited to be here to preach for the ordination service. Uh, please w- turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. That will be our scripture reading for this morning. And if, you're, if you don't have a Bible with you, they, you can find a blue Bible in one of the chairs in front of you. So if you're using a pew Bible, that's page 1007. 1007. And a little introduction here. We're in a series on the book of Hebrews. And most of the sermons will be Paul preaching through the book in order, verse by verse, but about once a month, I will be preaching, and whenever I'm preaching, we'll go ahead and jump to Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as this great hall of faith passage, and uh, each time we're in Hebrews 11, I'll be preaching essentially a biography sermon on one of the characters in the hall of faith. Uh, So today we'll look at a man named Abel. And later in the service, we'll also look at Genesis chapter 4, uh, but for right now, we'll just read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. So please stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. You may be seated, and please take a moment to reflect on the Word of God. I have a memory from one of my childhood Sunday school classes. I don't remember exactly what age I was. It was some elementary age, maybe between five and eight. And my Sunday school teacher was, was, was trying to teach us that we ought to model our life after Jesus' life. You know, he, he taught us the saying, what would Jesus do? And he was giving all sorts of examples and a bunch of different scenarios. And, and suddenly, a, a concerned hand popped up from one of my friends. And he said, but wait a second, Jesus died on a cross. You don't want us to go die on a cross, do you? And I don't actually remember what my teacher said in response to that. But I think my friend was starting to notice something about the Christian life, and during this moment, once he asked this question, I also started to recognize something like, wait a minute, following Jesus might not be easy. 
In fact, the message of the entire Bible is that following Jesus is not easy. It's very, very hard, sometimes even life-threatening. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the legendary German minister who, who's known for opposing the Nazi regime during World War II, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. I recommend every Christian should read this book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he says in it, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. You hear what he's saying? He's saying the cross isn't just something at the end of the Christian life, but it's actually where the Christian life begins. And then his most famous quote from this paragraph is this. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And Bonhoeffer practiced what he preached because he would eventually be captured by the Nazis and hanged. And as we look in the book of Hebrews and look at this chapter 11 hall of faith, I think it's no coincidence that the first man in the hall of faith is also the first human being to ever die. I don't know if you'd ever thought about that. The first human death was not Adam. It was not Eve. But it was Abel. Abel, the first hero of the faith, was also murdered for his faith. Now, before we get to Abel's faith, since we're kicking off the the hall of faith, I think it's important that we know what faith is, since we're going to be using that word so often. Uh, So this will be, you're kind of getting two for one today. This will be a four-point sermon. Two points quickly on faith in general, just what is faith. And then two points on Abel's faith specifically. So first, looking at Hebrews 11, let's talk about faith. The first point is that the author gives us a definition of faith. Look again with me at verse 1. He says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The word faith simply means to believe. But this is more than just an intellectual acceptance of of data and facts. Faith is more than just being a brain on a stick. Faith, the author is trying to communicate that faith is a confident persuasion that God will do what he's promised to do. What's always helped me understand faith is um, if if you look into some theology, theologians have, I believe, helpfully described faith as having three components to it. The first is knowledge, and for this I'll use the illustration of a chair. To have faith, you need knowledge. Let's say my my legs are tired, I really want to sit down, I need to at least know that a chair exists for me to sit in. Someone has to tell me the good news. Hey, there's a chair for your weary legs. So first is knowledge. Second is agreement. I can't just hear the good news, but I actually have to agree that that news is true. Okay, you're telling me about this chair to sit in. I believe that you're telling me the truth. 
But it, it doesn't stop there. Because just having knowledge and agreeing to that knowledge intellectually, it hasn't yet become faith. Faith needs a crucial third component, and that's trust. Trust. I hear the news. I agree that the news is true, but how do I actually trust this news about the chair? I sit in the chair. I sit in it. That's how I display my trust in this good news. So to have faith in Christ isn't just to have these right intellectual answers about him. They're crucial. You need the knowledge in order to believe it, but it doesn't stop there. So parents, make sure your your children and your teenagers know that having the right answers in Sunday school is no substitute for faith. It's a crucial element of it, but it's not the whole of faith. To have faith in Christ means you trust him with your soul like you trust your chair to hold you up right now. But sometimes we get stuck on the question, and that question is, okay, I'm saved by faith, but how much faith do I need? How much faith is enough faith? And the short and simple answer to this is that it's not the amount of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. In other words, it's not about how much faith you have, but about who you are placing your faith in. So think about the chair that you're sitting in. If suddenly you started to have doubts about whether this chair could actually hold you up, does your weak faith make your chair weaker? Absolutely not. It doesn't change the strength of your chair at all. Or take two people walking across a frozen river. One person is terrified, and the other person is as cool as a cucumber, and yet they're both walking across the river, and they both make it to the other side. Why are they both saved? One has a strong faith. The other has a weak faith. But the frozen river is just as strong for both of them. So I I know for for those of us that might struggle with assurance, we get so caught up in the strength of our faith that we forget the strength of our Savior. So if you're someone who struggles with assurance, or maybe one day you will, don't become so obsessed with the strength of your faith. Be obsessed with the strength of your Savior. Because it's not your faith in your faith that saves you. It's your faith in Christ that saves you. Uh, So it's not so much about the strength of our faith as far as what saves us. But when a faith gets weak, when a weak faith goes unaddressed for too long, it can cause some serious problems in our life. And that's what the author of Hebrews is dealing with. He's, he's trying to help his people. He's trying to help his church have a stronger faith. So he gives them some pictures to look at to strengthen their faith. And in verse 3, he tells us to look around. He says, look at creation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, that he created everything out of nothing. So he's saying our thinking should be as we, as we look at this world as we look at uh, the creation that God has made, like we just sang in great, in thy, great is Thy Faithfulness, we should think, if my God can create everything out of nothing, surely He has the power to keep the promises that He's made to me. So He tells us to look around. And then for the rest of chapter 11 that we'll get to see together, He tells us to look back at the Old Testament and see these wonderful, inspiring examples of faith. 
which leads to our second point on faith, and that's this, and it's really important to know this. Salvation has always been by faith alone, even in the Old Testament. Even in the Old Testament. That's a point that's crucial to make since we'll be looking at so many Old Testament characters. And I bring this up because I know, because I've been there, when we think about the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's really tempting to believe, okay, I think salvation in the Old Testament was by obedience to the law, and then salvation in the New Testament was by faith in Christ. The problem with that is is that the Old Testament never communicates that at all. You can think even even in the Ten Commandments, when God gives the commandments to his people, what does he say right before the commandments? He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Even when God gives the law to his people, he, before he does it, he makes the point of saying, your obedience doesn't save you. I've already saved you. Now here's how you should live. And that's why the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, we see it again and again. He says, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith is how these Old Testament saints lived. So when we look at Abel's sacrifice this morning, it's important to recognize it's not his sacrifice that made him righteous. But rather it was the evidence of his righteousness. Abel's sacrifice displays to us that his heart was already right before God. And you can only be right with God by faith, by faith. So with that little intro to just understanding faith rightly, let's take a closer look at Abel. And to do that, I want us to read Genesis chapter 4. So please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. And it's on page 3 of the Pew Bible, if you're using one of those. And you can stay seated, but I'll read... uh, the first 16 verses of chapter 4, to get a deeper look at Abel. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work from the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. 
You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Node, east of Eden. So this comes right after the fall. Adam and Eve have uh, sinned against the Lord. They're, they're kicked out of paradise, kicked out of the garden. But in chapter 3, God gives them a promise. He gives them the first promise of a Messiah that would come from the human offspring of Eve. And we can presume that Adam and Eve believed this promise because they started having children. And their firstborn is named Cain. Uh, and their, their secondborn is named Abel. Now, Abel's name means vapor or breath. It could also be translated as vanity. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because Abel's name is the same word used throughout Ecclesiastes to talk about vanity. And Abel ended up living up to his name, not because his life was vain, but because his life was so short-lived. But I want us to see this morning that Abel's life, it was short, but it was not a wasted life. It was a life of faith. And there's two lessons I think we can learn from Abel's faith. The first is that true faith is expressed in worship. True faith is expressed in worship. So this story begins with Cain and Abel both coming to worship God, which in its context should really shock us. I mean, Adam and Eve have just brought the entire human race down in the curse of sin, and yet God is committed to providing a way for his people to come back to him. He's committed to providing a way to be accessed in worship and in relationship, and his way of doing so at this point in history was through an offering. Abel was a shepherd, so he brought God a sheep. And Cain was a farmer, so he brought some fruit. The Lord accepts uh, Abel's offering, but he rejects Cain's. And there's been a lot written, a lot of people wondering, why did God accept one but reject the other? Is it because animal offerings are better than fruit offerings? Well, there's no indication of that. There's no specific uh, laws at this time about sacrifices and offerings, so we shouldn't get too caught up on, on whether a sheep or a fruit uh, was better for the Lord. There's no indication of that. But the answer is actually more simpler than we might think it is, because the book of Hebrews tells us exactly why the Lord accepted Abel's offering. In chapter 11, he says he offers it by faith. Abel offers to God by faith. The issue is not the physical offering. The issue is the heart of the giver. Abel had a heart that loved God. And we see this because he gave God his best. It says he gave him the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. 
If you love a barbecue brisket just like I do, and the person asks you, do you want lean or fatty? The correct answer is always fatty because it's going to taste better. He gives the Lord the best of the best. Now compare Abel's offering to Cain. Just says he gave some fruit. Not the first fruit, just some fruit. Seems like Cain reserved the best for himself. Cain was looking for convenient religion. Abel was living in a relationship worth sacrifice. Cain was looking for the bare minimum to get God's approval. Abel knew he had God's approval, so he was willing to give him whatever he deserved. Cain's worship was a checkbox on a to-do list. Abel's worship was self-sacrificial love. Cain prioritized his own comfort. Abel prioritized God's glory. Do you see the difference between the two? Cain is a reminder that religious duty means nothing if it doesn't come from a heart that delights in God. Religious duty means nothing if it doesn't come from a heart that delights in God. Maybe think of a time that uh, someone's come to you for dating advice. This didn't happen to me often because I was terrible at dating until I met Elena. She really caught me when I was entering my prime. Uh, but I've heard of... But I've heard of situations like this, especially with men going to other men. So men, imagine one of your friends comes to you and he says, dude, I, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm buying her whatever she wants. I'm nice to her. I'm driving her around town, spending gas money on her. Like I, I'm, I'm doing whatever she wants to do, but like something's missing in our relationship and I don't know what it is. And the answer is usually something like, dude, She doesn't want your chivalrous deeds. She wants your heart. The Lord doesn't want our religious deeds. He wants our heart. And out of our heart, those deeds flow. Not out of a checkbox, but out of self-sacrificial love. God wants your heart. Abel's heart was close to God. And Cain's heart was far from him. So do we have a heart that's eager to give God our best? Now it would be easy here for me to focus on certain particulars of this. Like are we giving him the first fruits of our tithe? The first fruits of our attention? First fruits of our schedule? But I think the thrust of what Abel teaches us is is, is much broader in scope than that. Abel's posture of life was focused on what God wanted and what God deserved. Abel shows us that worship is simply not about what we want. Worship is not about our preferences. Worship is not about if we prefer a guitar or an organ. Worship is not about if we prefer a big church or a small church. Worship is simply about what God deserves and what God wants. So we should ask the question, What does God want from me on a Sunday morning? What does God want from me on a Monday morning? What does God want from me on a Friday night? What does God want from me on a Wednesday at noon? And this is really important because we're in a season of transition here at Christ Community Church. A very exciting season, a season of growth, but 
there'll be some changes and there'll be lots of decisions made with lots of opinions. And we, everyone in this process, has to check our own heart and, and, and say, but what does God want? And sometimes God getting what he wants is going to be me not getting what I want. So that's important for us to know. That is the posture of worship. Abel's faith was expressed in his worship. But second, the second lesson we learn from Abel's faith is that true faith is worth dying for. True faith is worth dying for. So we'll we'll look back at the story here. God accepts Abel's offering and rejects Cain's. And then Cain gets angry. In the Hebrew, it literally says he became hot and his face fell. Cain was mad and it was obvious when you looked at him. So God comes to Cain and gently, graciously asks him a question. Cain, why are you angry? Cain, no answer. You see, God is trying to have a conversation with Cain, but Cain, like an angry teenager, gives God the silent treatment. And in verse 7, God shows that he knows Cain's heart. And he sees Cain's anger bubbling up inside. He tells Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Another interesting thing about the Hebrew in this sentence is that there's an extra you there for emphasis. You don't need it grammatically, but there's an extra you in the sentence. So you could read it like this. Sin is crouching at your door, but you, you must rule over it. He's communicating to Cain, take action now, Cain. Kill your sin before it kills you. Take action before it's too late. And again, Cain says nothing. He's cold. He's indifferent. His heart is hardened against God. So in verse 8, Cain speaks to Abel. And we don't know exactly what Cain said, but whatever he said, it got Abel to come to the field with him. And while they were there, we don't know if it was sneak attack or brute force. We don't know exactly how it went down, but Cain kills Abel. So here we have the first murder and the first martyr of the faith. And in verse 9, the Lord keeps pursuing Cain. We've heard this theme come up again and again from some of Paul's recent sermons. The Lord keeps pursuing Cain. And again, he asks Cain a question. Where is your brother? And God already knows the answer to this, but he's he's giving Cain a chance to repent and confess. He's trying to elicit a confession from Cain. He's still offering Cain grace, a chance to turn around before it's too late. But Cain refuses to repent and instead he gets sassy with god i don't know am i my brother's keeper so god pronounces the judgment cain is punished with homelessness for life essentially he's saying you're going to be a nomad all of your days you're not going to be able to farm anymore because the ground will literally not grow fruit for you The Lord that made the ground so cursed the ground so that it would not grow fruit for Cain. And rather than a speedy death sentence, Cain will have to live 
with the shame of what he's done for the rest of his life. So Abel was the first human death. But this morning I want you to know his life was not a waste. His life was not a waste at all. His faith was worth dying for. And why was it? Why was Abel's faith worth dying for? Why was his short life not a wasted life? There's a few reasons for this. The first is that the moment Abel died, he entered the presence of God. The moment Abel died, he entered the presence of God. That's why Hebrews 11 says, Abel, though he died, he still speaks. Think about this for a moment. Abel would have been the first human being to enter God's perfect heavenly presence. When Hebrews 12 says that we have a great cloud of witnesses, maybe you recognize that phrase, since we then have this great cloud of witnesses, I believe there that he's, he's talking about the believers who died in chapter 11. That's our great cloud of witnesses. So it's those believers who died that are now in heaven cheering you on as you're running the race of faith. And Abel is standing in heaven today, cheering you on, saying, I regret nothing. I regret nothing because now I'm with Jesus. So think about the original audience of Hebrews that we've learned about the last few weeks. Their their faith could have led to their death. And the author of Hebrews is communicating to them, your faith is worth dying for. True faith is worth dying for. So for us, if Jesus is worth dying for, he's also worth getting teased for. He's worth getting canceled for. He's worth getting fired for. And he's worth losing friends for. After working in ministry for years, I can say, parents, start teaching your kids now that Jesus is better than friends. Because there will be moments, even as early as middle school, even as early as elementary school, where they're going to lose friends because of Jesus. And you have to tell them Jesus is so worth it. It's not going to be easy, but he's so worth it. The second reason why Abel's faith was worth dying for is that God would avenge his death. God would avenge his death. In verse 10, God says to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. It's a powerful image. What was Abel's blood crying, metaphorically? It was crying, justice must be served. Justice must be served, and God would serve justice. So when God puts the mark on Cain towards the end of the story, don't think that that means God forgave Cain, because there's absolutely no sign of Cain's repentance. We see that he didn't like the punishment, that the punishment was more than he could bear, but there's no sign of him turning around and placing his faith in in God. Instead, what the mark did, the mark was a sign that if Cain did not repent, God would judge him in his own timing. And the mark was supposed to preserve Cain's life so that other human beings wouldn't take matters into their own hands. So you can imagine how that would be just mob justice and that would have gotten out of hand very quickly. So a point of application here is that the wrath of God is good news for the persecuted church. 
The wrath of God is good news for the persecuted church. Well, why is that? Because God will never let his people die for nothing. God will never let his people die for nothing. He says in the Bible, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And it gives us the comfort of knowing that evil will not win in the end. And that God will hold evil men accountable. It's the only way we can account for true justice in this world. But the third reason, and the most important reason that Abel's faith was worth dying for, is this. That God himself would sacrifice far more than Abel ever could. God himself would sacrifice far more than Abel ever could. God will never ask you to outgive himself. God will never ask you to outsacrifice himself. You see, Abel loved God so much that he gave God his firstborn lamb. But God so loved Abel that he also gave a lamb. And this lamb just happened to be his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24 says, The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He's not saying Abel's word was bad. There was justice that needed to be served. So Abel's blood cried, justice must be served. What did the blood of Jesus cry out then? How is the blood of Jesus a better word than the blood of Abel? When Christ spilled his blood, it it didn't cry, justice must be served. It cried, justice has been satisfied. Justice has been satisfied. You see, Abel was a victim. But Jesus was no helpless victim. Jesus was a willing volunteer for sinners like you and me. The righteous judgment of God that we deserve for our sin was placed on Christ. He was pierced for our transgressions. By his wounds, we are healed. That is why the blood of Jesus is even better than the blood of Abel. That is the gospel. And we all need the gospel because we're all like Cain. Maybe you've never murdered a man in cold blood, but we've all murdered people in our heart. That's what Jesus says anger is in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe your worship of God is often preoccupied with your convenience and your comfort rather than God's glory and what he deserves. Maybe your religious duties look okay, but your heart is actually far from God. And I'll be the first to say the preacher this morning is guilty of all of those things. But my only hope and our only hope is that we can be saved by faith alone and Christ alone. So let me ask you again, are you trusting in Christ like you trust your chair to hold you up this morning? Do you trust him with your soul? If so, following Jesus will cost you. But it will never cost you more than it cost the Father. It will never cost you more than it cost Jesus himself. Jesus found you worth dying for. So a faith in Jesus is most certainly worth dying for. Let me pray for us.
Father, we are so often preoccupied with our own convenience, with our own comfort, with the duties of our religion. But God, would you give us a heart like Abel, who was willing to give anything, who is even willing to die for you. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him as, as your firstborn son, as your only begotten son, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God, would we place our faith in him? Help us place our faith in him. Help, him, help us trust him with our soul. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.